The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Kimber Stanhope. She is a fellow registered dietitian. She holds a master's in nutrition science and a Ph.D. in nutritional biology from the University of California at Davis, where she has lately been researching or investigating the effects of sugar on metabolic disease. And I think that our listeners will be very interested in hearing some of your findings. So, Dr. Stanhope, welcome. Hi, Melinda. I really appreciate the invitation to be here. Well, you gave such a fabulous presentation at the Association of Healthcare Journalists meeting several weeks ago in Santa Clara that I wanted to have you talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you face as a researcher as well as what you've discovered. So let's just start at ground zero and say, how is it that you became interested in the role of sugar in metabolic disease? Oh, that's a Fun question to answer, but a long one, so I have to give you the short version. But like is often the case in the world of research, we were investigating one thing, and that kind of accidentally led to the sugar route. The one thing we were investigating was the hormone leptin. It was discovered in around 1995, and all us researchers, especially those of us who are interested in obesity, got very excited, thinking this could very well be the obesity cure, because we found out mice that didn't have leptin were very fat, but if you injected leptin, they got thin, and it felt like hope for all obese people in the world. Turned out that wasn't true. But in the course of our studies where we investigated leptin, it led us accidentally to be looking at fructose. Fructose is one of our major monosaccharides. Our world is full of two monosaccharides, fructose and glucose. And our leptin research led us to the discovery fructose consumption does not increase leptin levels, whereas glucose consumption does. That led us to ask the question, gee, is it possible then that people who are eating lots of fructose in the form of sucrose or high fructose corn syrup could be making it easier to eat more and gain weight? Because that's what leptin does. It is a hormone made by fat cells, and the fat cells send the leptin up to the brain, and the leptin says to the brain, quit eating so much, the fat cells are already too big, and burn more calories. So our accidental discovery that fructose does not increase leptin levels led us to suggest, wow, maybe this could explain or show that people who eat high-sugar diets will gain more weight because their leptin levels are lower. Now, 
We haven't proven that hypothesis so far. There's just, we've made little tiny baby steps on what we've learned about sugar and obesity, but accidentally in the process of investigating the effects of fructose consumption and sugar consumption on obesity, we have learned independent of obesity, fructose consumption, whether it's fructose by itself or fructose in the form of sucrose or high fructose corn syrup, increases risk factors for metabolic disease even when subjects aren't gaining weight. So the effect appears to be independent of body weight changes, independent of obesity. Hmm. And that was a very important finding, just as important as if we had found for sure sugar promotes or contributes to obesity. We haven't proven that one yet, but we are quite confident that our results show that there is an independent link between sugar consumption and increased risk for metabolic disease. Now, when you say metabolic disease, what are you talking about specifically? Basically, it's almost, they're so hard to separate out, and that's why we now have this new term called metabolic syndrome. Mm -hmm. Maybe some of your listeners have heard that term. Maybe some of them haven't. But basically, metabolic syndrome is how we designate the fact that no one seems to have cardiovascular disease all by itself. Cardiovascular disease goes hand in hand with hypertension and central obesity and insulin resistance and increased risk for diabetes. And so when we talk about metabolic disease or metabolic syndrome, we are talking about this constellation of diseases that rarely occur independently and tend to occur in groups. Mm -hmm. The reason when you look at the metabolic pathways is very easy to understand. They all make each other worse. Well, your research has revealed some very important findings. And one of the things that I thought was so interesting is that you found that young men are more sensitive to the effects of high fructose corn syrup in beverages than young women. And I thought, that's really interesting. What's the mechanism there? We don't know for sure, but we do know that estrogen is a powerful hormone that has effects all over the body. And one of its effects is to improve insulin sensitivity. And when I say insulin sensitivity, that's like saying that is a measure of how well your insulin works how well it does its job. And if estrogen truly improves insulin sensitivity, then that might be giving women a little extra edge when it comes to protection against the negative effects of sugar consumption. Because one of the effects of sugar consumption is to increase insulin resistance, which is a backwards way of saying sugar makes your insulin less sensitive or not work as well. Mm -hmm. And sugar also affects the low-density lipoproteins or the bad cholesterol. How Mm -hmm. does that work? 
That is an excellent question, and we're not absolutely 100% sure of the mechanism, but I'm going to go for it and go ahead and stop me if I'm getting too technical and I've probably lost everybody, okay? Okay. But let's say the problem with fructose, the monosaccharide, compared to the monosaccharide glucose is that fructose is metabolized almost exclusively in the liver. Glucose, on the other hand, is metabolized all over the body. It leaves the intestine and goes to the muscles, the brain, the fat cells, the nerve cells. They all can use it. But fructose gets pulled into the liver and very little of the fructose you eat or drink in a great big soda ends up in the blood going to the muscle. Instead, it's in the liver. This overloads the liver with just too much substrate. The liver has has to do something with all of it. And it does its best. It turns some of it into energy and it stores some of it as glucose for later energy needs. But when there's leftover, it's going to get turned into fat. Mm. Now, when that fructose gets turned into fat, the liver can do two things with it. One, it just can store that fat in the liver or it can send it out into the blood. Neither are a very good option. The storage of extra fat in the liver makes the liver insulin resistant. And again, that increases risk for insulin resistance and diabetes, okay? But if it sends it out in the blood... It sends it out along with a bunch of extra cholesterol. Then when you get lots and lots of triglyceride in your blood, that affects how your body metabolizes cholesterol. It tends to make it stick around rather than get picked up and used. It makes your HDL cholesterol, remember that's the good guy cholesterol? Right. It makes your HDL cholesterol not work as well with regard to pulling the cholesterol out of the blood and out of the cells where we don't want the cholesterol to be. So that, we believe, is the reason that there is a connection between sugar and LDL cholesterol. The sugar gets turned into fat. That fat gets sent into blood along with cholesterol, and then having extra triglyceride in the blood undermines the body's ability to get the cholesterol out of the blood. That's probably the easiest way to explain it, but this is a work in progress. Many people are working very hard to try and figure out the exact mechanism. Do you think that this research that you and your colleagues are doing will result in some positive policy changes? Well, I certainly would like to think so. But it's very, very difficult. Policy changes would be very, very good for the public. Let's look at what they did in Mexico. They taxed sodas and junk food. Right. And there are two advantages to doing that. One is... Perhaps people will eat less of these foods and it will decrease rates of the obesity epidemic, the diabetes, and maybe the cardiovascular disease, maybe. But the other positive, it generates 
a pot of money that have been targeted for health education and even providing extra help and supplementing the medical care for people who have diabetes and cardiovascular disease. All sorts of positive things can be done with this money. Mm-hmm. Now, it seems like a win-win. By two possible mechanisms, we can improve people's health. Better health education and plus a motivation to make them drink less of that soda. Every attempt, however, in this country has failed. And one of the reasons it has failed due to intense lobbying by the industry to prevent either the legislators from passing these or convincing the voters this is a bad thing. They will outspend the pro-tax people who are campaigning for this kind of change, you know, 50 to 1, 30 to 1. There's examples of this that have been documented. So we are not making great progress. The other thing is it would be possible if we had science in which there was no way anybody can look at the scientific results and say sugar doesn't contribute to obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease. And the reason I can't assure you that if you did a bunch of research, you wouldn't find research studies that show the opposite of my studies. You will find them. But unfortunately, most of these studies were funded by the industry. And that muddies the water. But it makes it very easy for a lobbyist for the beverage industry or the corn refiners or the sugar association to take research studies that look very, very valid and put them in front of a legislator and say, there is no definitive evidence that sugar causes these diseases, that sugar even contributes to these diseases. Look at this research study. Mm-hmm. And that's very compelling to a legislator. Right. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Dr. Kimber Stanhope. She is a fellow registered dietitian. She also has a Ph.D. in nutritional biology, and she does research on sugar and metabolic disease at the University of California at Davis. Well, yes, the influence of industry is huge, and that brings me to the dietary guidelines, because I would like to get your opinion on how you think this new version, the 2015 version, is in terms of its recommendations. I believe this is the first time where there's actually been a recommendation to eat less sugar, and the recommendation is no more than 10% of total calories from sugar. It's higher than the American Heart Association, which by comparison, just for our listeners, The American Heart Association says that women should eat no more than six added teaspoons of sugar, and men should consume no more than nine. And you know how difficult that is already. Are you happy with the dietary guidelines at that 10% cutoff? I am happy in that it's a huge improvement over the previous guideline. 
In 2010, they allowed the guideline to remain at 25%, and I was shocked in 2010. I was very disappointed. I thought the research certainly suggested that 25% was not a safe level of sugar consumption. So, yes, I think 10 is a huge, huge improvement, and I support it. Now, does that mean I positively know for sure that consuming 10% of your calories day after day as added sugar is completely safe? I don't know that, and I would love to find out. I even wrote an NIH grant and submitted it in which I proposed to study the effects of precisely formulated diets that contained either 0, 5, 10, 15, or 20% of energy as added sugar. And, of course, my goal was to identify that safe level of sugar consumption. Of course, I could only do it over an eight-week period, but at least that would give us more knowledge than we have now. Right. However, the reviewers certainly were not convinced by my grant that we needed this information. In fact, the NIH reviewers, the ones that reviewed my grant, pretty much suggested that, hey, your date is great. We don't need any more studies. We know that sugar is bad for health. You've convinced everybody except the industry. Right. That was kind of a compliment, but it's sure going to make it hard for us to get any more NIH-funded studies to further investigate questions like, what is the safe level of sugar consumption? But I have a lot of other questions I certainly think we need to ask. I would like to do a study. Um, How does the sugar in solid food compare to the sugar in beverage? Mm -hmm. That is a very, very minimally studied area, and most of us researchers, just because it's so much easier, have studied only the effects of beverage sugar, not solid food sugar. Right. And it's in everything, just about, that's processed. I know that when I look at the food label and trying to educate consumers, it's very difficult without having an added sugar line on the label. And I am hoping that the new dietary guidelines will result in a change of the food label where consumers don't have to do math. They don't have to divide grams by four to equal teaspoons of sugar. But I don't know Where do you think the direction for that is going? I'm hopeful. The FDA proposal, when Michelle Obama introduced this, I was so excited and I thought it would be an easy, easy and obvious next step. I was shocked when I saw an editorial in the Times discussing why we didn't need this added sugar. Anybody can pick up a can of soda and know exactly how much added sugar is in it, all of its added sugar. And I just shook my head. Well, yes, that's true for a soda. But you and I, with all our training in nutrition, can't pick up a fruit-flavored yogurt and know how much of that total sugar in the yogurt was added by the processor, how much of it's in the milk, and how much of it's in the fruit they added to the yogurt. I can't tell. 
And if I can't tell, I don't think the consumer can tell. No, and even with grams, even making that conversion, you've got to do math, and people are in a hurry. They'd rather not pull out their calculators and have to do that. It's funny, though. I had somebody from the industry argue that it would be too confusing for consumers to put added sugar on the label, and I just had to laugh. That was just so crazy. The consumers wanted to. Of course. Well, you know, there are different sources of sugar out there, and I wanted to make sure that we had an opportunity to talk about them because we know high fructose corn syrup is in most of the processed foods. It's in soda. It's in jellies and jams. One only has to look at the ingredient label to find it. But then there are arguments for these quote-unquote natural sugars. So there's agave syrup, there's honey. What are your thoughts on these more natural products? Are they any more healthful in terms of how we metabolize them? Okay. Now, go back and remember that sucrose, pure table sugar, and there's numerous studies that have shown that sucrose consumption increases risk factors for metabolic disease, too. Mm -hmm. But where do we get that? We get it from a plant, a sugar cane. So essentially, if you take a sugar from an agave and you purify it every bit as much as we do the sugar from sugar cane, you're going to essentially have the exact same thing, except with agave, you're going to have an even more fructose molecules then we get with the sugar cane where we know exactly all the molecules are 50% fructose, okay? Mm-hmm. But with agave, it just happens to be a high fructose plant, has a higher level of fructose than most plants. If you isolate those sugars as perfectly as we do sucrose out of a sugar cane, There is absolutely no reason to think just because it's, quote, from a natural source, it will be any better for you than table sugar, which is also from a natural source. Exactly. So now when you just ask me, though, about any random natural form of sugar, I don't know all the processing details. Is it possible that a sugar that is far less purified will be better for you than sucrose? Possibly. Now, honey is a very, very interesting sugar in that it's really the only natural source where you can go straight to, in this case, the honeycomb and eat honey and in its natural form consume a very significant amount of sugar. It's about the only thing that is available in nature that you can consume in its natural form and be on a high-sugar diet. Mm -hmm. So that's a reason to be concerned. You can certainly consume a lot of sugar when you consume honey. However, there is lots and lots of studies that have shown that honey appears to be more protective than other sugars. Now, none of these studies are definitive. None of these studies are as carefully controlled as the study I would like to do if somebody gave me the money to say, you figure it out. Is honey better for you than sucrose or high fructose corn syrup? 
I would want to do a longer study. I would want people to eat high amounts of both. I would want them to be blinded so they didn't know which one they were getting. And I would want to do 24-hour blood collections before and after. And nobody has quite done any studies as expensive and as extensive as that. Right. So I read that review and I shake my head in surprise and say, wow, it sure looks like it could be possible that honey is more protective than sugar, that there might be some natural ingredient in that honey that's affecting the way our bodies deal with the sugar from honey compared to the sugar from the soda. But I wish I could do the study so I could give you a more precise answer. Well, we just have um, a couple of minutes left, and I there's one question on my list that I have to ask, and that is your opinion on artificial sweeteners. I use aspartame as the control sweetener in my study. And to this date, I have not seen a single negative effect of aspartame on any of my subjects with regard to lipids, with regard to insulin resistance, with regard to weight gain. Absolutely none. And my results pretty much match other researchers who have done the same thing I have, have used aspartame as the control sweetener when they have studied the effects of sugar. All of us have reported that Certainly, the aspartame group didn't gain weight, and if anything, some of them even lost weight compared to the group consuming the sugar. Mm. And none of us have ever seen any negative changes with lipids and some of the other risk factors we are studying. So that means when somebody comes to me, and I get asked this all the time, oh, right, is it better for me to drink an aspartame-sweetened beverage compared to a sugar-sweetened beverage. I drink too much of the sodas, but I don't want to give them up, but I'm okay with the aspartame. Is that a better choice? I will definitely say yes, certainly in the short term, especially, you know, if that's going to help you get off the sugar, do it. But can I promise anybody that aspartame consumption for 20, 30 years has absolutely no problems associated with it? No, I don't know positively for sure. I do know that consuming three aspartame sweetened drinks per day does not increase methanol levels to a detectable level in the blood. And the methanol that is released when aspartame is metabolized is why many people have developed concerns about aspartame consumption. However, you have to drink far more than three sodas a day to even have methanol show up in the blood. So there's a lot of research that should and could be done to look more closely at whether there is any reason for concern. Certainly, the regular intervention studies that we have done, but they're all short-term. Six months is the longest. That's all anybody can afford. Well, Dr. Stanhope, we will have to refer people to sugarscience.org to get more information about your incredible research 
and to link to some of the new research that you're doing. We have been speaking with Dr. Kimber Stanhope, fellow dietitian and nutritional biology researcher at the University of California at Davis. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank Dr. Stanhope for being my guest and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you again, Dr. Stanhope, for spending time with me this afternoon. My pleasure, Melinda. Thank you.